Greetings from the far side of the wormhole nexus, and welcome to the Vorcast, a podcast about Lois McMaster Bujold's Vorkosigan Saga. My name is Daniel Galsworth, and I would like to welcome you all back to episode three, where we'll be continuing to read through the first installment of the Vorkosigan Saga, the short story Dreamweaver's Dilemma. Before we continue our breakdown, I would first like to do a little housekeeping, and I promise it won't take half the episode this time. First, I have been informed that Lois McMaster Bujold does prefer to be addressed as Lois, and so Lois it shall be from now on. I will admit that I was beginning to get increasingly strong impulses to say LRH instead of LMB, and that was concerning. Next, can you feel pain in your dreams? Do you smell things? While listening through the last episode, I caught something in the dialogue that slipped past me the first time. This happens when Anias and Kinsey have their meeting and Anias is asking for details about his custom feely dream. Quote, do you want zoom transitions or melt? How much pain? What odors? End quote. I don't know about you guys, but when I started thinking about this, it occurred to me that I don't think I've ever experienced pain in a dream or any other sense besides sight. Sounds seem like they come from within, even if they are being generated in my dreamscape. For me, dreams are mostly emotional. Like, I wonder about those videos where people put treats in front of their sleeping dogs to see how long it takes for them to wake up. In some of those, it looks like the dog is having an emotional transition, zoom or melt, in their dream after the treat is put down. But they don't really start dream sniffing. Mostly, it's their REM that changes probably from feeling the treat with their whiskers and not sleep smelling it. And they start sniffing as they awake. Anias Ray, Feely Dream Composer, sniffed up out of sleep, feeling like a dog with a treat in front of her nose. It's just a riff. A riff on a theme. After further researching pain and other sensations generated while dreaming, I found an excerpt from a 2013 New York Times article headlined Scented Dreams, which talks about a 1998 study published in the journal Perceptual and Motor Skills called Prevalence of Auditory, Olfactory, and Gustatory Experience in Home Dreams by Zadra, Nielsen, and Dunderai. Oh, look at that. Dunderai. That's close. The conclusion of the study was about 50% of the 164 participants, 49 men, 115 women, self-reported auditory experiences, but only 1% reported olfactory and gustatory experiences. According to the New York Times article that referenced this paper. Okay, this is hilarious. Smells showed up at least once in the reports from 2% of the men and 20.9% of the women. The authors conjecture that the imbalance might have arisen because women are more interested in odors than men. Okay. Another, Another article I found on the topic of pain in dreams is from a 1993 paper, Pain in Dreams, by Nilsson, McGregor, Zadra, Elnicki, and Ouellette in the journal Sleep. And there's some of the same names from the previous article, even though I found them independently. Interesting. Here's the abstract. Quote, Little is known about pain in dreams. Some studies indicate that it is rare and that it may be beyond the representational capabilities of dreaming. However, the present study describes experiences of dreamed pain that were reported incidentally in experiments on the effects of somatosensory stimulation administered during rapid eye movement, REM sleep. All right, so let's try that. Somatosensory. There it is, somatosensory. Mm -hmm. Dreams were selected from five subjects who had reported at least one instance of dreamed pain in these studies. 
the subjects had undergone 42 stimulation trials over 20 nights and had reported a total of 13 dreams, 31%, with one or more references to pain. Most often, these references appeared to be direct, untransformed incorporations of real sensations produced by stimulation. Pain was the principal motivating agent in a majority of these dreams and was in many cases associated with a strong emotion, typically anger. Dreams often depict the subject's attempt to obtain relief from pain, in some cases by repetition of actions and others by metaphoric renditions of a goal. It's so cool. The results indicate that although pain is rare in dreams, it is nevertheless compatible with the representational code of dreaming. Furthermore, the association of pain with dream content may implicate brainstem and limbic centers in the regulation of pain stimuli during REM sleep, end quote. The conclusion, it seems to me, is that it is possible to cause pain sensations in a dream by causing external pain stimulation to the body. But I couldn't find anything about experiencing pain while dreaming purely from stimulation within the dream. The research about smells is a bit more conclusive, saying that after the initial stages of falling asleep, external smells have almost no influence on the dream experience. Take that, dog videos. These research papers all require self-reporting and their ends were also really low, so their conclusions are always subject to those errors and also probably their methodology. And I mean, these, these, these research papers are almost all garbage, just you know, it's in my opinion. But, <laughs> but I can self-report that I have never experienced pain generated by an event in a dream nor any other sensation besides vision and the sense of impending doom or something. So what's the point of all this besides hinting at the quantity of dog videos I watch? The point is that these dreams, I'm air quoting now, these dreams that Anais makes are not actually dreams, but more of an immersive simulation of a dreamlike environment. I think they are simply marketed as dreams to help sell the concept or because it is the easiest way to describe them but they are not dreams. They are simulations that also communicate residual emotions from the simulator. Picture a cross between the matrix and inception. I think if I start picking apart dream weaving much further, we will start to see some plot holes open up. So I'm going to stop there, but I think it is important to point out that I don't think these are literal dreams, if that's not an oxymoron. The next item is more of an announcement slash teaser. I recently came into possession of the Verkosikin Saga GURPS generic universal role-playing system RPG. This thing is amazing. It is just jammed full of Vercosiverse lore and so much amazing artwork. It seems that most of the professional Vercosiverse artwork online that aren't book covers came from this manual. I haven't read deeply into it yet, but I'm sure this will be a really useful reference and I also plan on playing it for a live stream or something one day. If you're curious about the game, I'm sorry to say that you will have to buy it off eBay and Googling Verkosikin Saga GURPS PDF will definitely not work, so don't try. Next, I'd like to give a little update about the pacing so far. Believe it or not, in the last two hours of podcasts, I've only covered five pages of text in my ninth edition of the Dreamweaver's Dilemma collection published in 2019. The story Dreamweaver's Dilemma runs about 34 pages. My explanation for this is the obvious fact that only about half of the first two episodes actually cover the text. Also, as I encounter new facets of this world, I feel the need to stop and point them out. I'm pretty sure that once the universe gets fleshed out a little more, and most of the main characters have been introduced and established, I won't have to take as much time looking at the setting, and we can just get through the stories. That being said, 
I think I will be able to finish Dreamweaver's Dilemma in about one more episode. Finally, I would like to say thank you to everybody who has listened to or subscribed or followed my podcast so far. Also, a big thank you to all the people interacting with me on the R. Vorkosigan subreddit. The R. The Vorkast subreddit is getting going, so feel free to join for episode updates. Particularly, I'd like to mention the commenter who told me about Lois and the person who suggested that the podcast should have been called The Vorkast, spelled C-A-S-T-E, as in a rigid social hierarchy. I was trying to play off the title of the book, The Vor Game, in case anybody is wondering how I thought up the name, but you all should just be grateful because I almost called the podcast The Vorkosacast. Now, as promised, we shall return to Anais Ray, Rudolph Kinsey, and the intriguing Chalmis Dubauer. Hello, fellow Vorkies. If you'd like to reach out to me, you can email me at thevorecastpodcast at gmail.com or send me a message on Instagram at the Vorecast, all one word. That's T-H-E-V-O-R-C-A-S-T. Please rate, review, like, follow, and or subscribe to The Vorecast on whatever podcast platform you use. Thanks, and always remember, forward momentum! Previously, Anias Ray agrees to create a custom feely dream for Rudolph Kinsey containing some very disturbing imagery and sensations. Rudolph insists on complete secrecy about the project and... In exchange, Rudolph offers Anais 20,000 SAH pesadoros, which is a very large sum of money. They agree to meet again in two weeks for delivery. Being unable to concentrate on her work in her apartment in Rio, Anais decides to visit her friend Chalmas Dubauer, who lives in an isolated location. We finished the last episode gushing over the first three sentences of Chalmas Dubauer's introductory paragraph and talking about why I think it works so much better than Anais Ray's intro. Let's pick it up there at the beginning of Chalmers's intro and read the whole paragraph through. Quote, Chalmers Dubauer once called himself an exile in time. Being by early training and temperament more an engineer than a poet, he spoke precisely and not metaphorically. He'd spent some 25 subjective years serving aboard the early atomic ram ships traveling near the speed of light to and from Earth's only successful pre-wormhole colony. This translated into almost 160 objective years on Earth and Beta Colony and left him permanently out of sync with the history of either planet. The most intense technical training was thrice made wholly obsolete by the slip and flow of time between his destinations. He had left wife and children behind on Beta Colony when he was drafted to help officer the hurried, fearful return expedition to America upon the news 24 light years old of the Great War. His family was swallowed up in time before his much-delayed return, captaining a ship of a government that had not even existed when he had first left Earth. The Beta Colony to which he returned was as successful as his early dreams had pictured, but not in the ways he had ever imagined. It was not a success that he had helped to build. He had had a pleasant enough stay with his sole surviving child, a girl not yet conceived when he had left. She was an ancient, frail, content great-grandmother who seemed to find him as inexplicable as a leprechaun. And in the time it took for his last return to Earth, the discovery and rapid development of new wormhole technology with its instantaneous jumps through the gulfs of space drained his sacrifices of the last of their meaning. End quote. Mike drop. Mike drop. I mean, 
I mean, this guy, right? This guy. Wow. The first thing I want to point out in relation to character development is that when we first meet Anais, within the first page or so, we get an impression that she has pretty much achieved all of her life's goals before the story even started. She has everything she wants. Her problems come from her lack of artistic motivation, which I could argue is a form of indecisiveness. Unless you think you're the next Shakespeare, I would bet that making your character indecisive will not help them be more interesting. More than likely, the reader will become frustrated with the character and lose interest in their goals. With Chalmers, on the other hand, we find out in the first paragraph that all his life's goals turn out to be futile efforts and that he can never get what he wants. I tried to find the writing guide or video where I first came across this idea, but one of the easiest ways to create compelling characters, at least on first sight, is to give them some kind of want. The writer's job then becomes making that reader want the character to get that want, or not get it if that character is an antagonist. It all comes down to the intrinsic or setting-dependent relatability of that want, along with the character's behavior as they try to get what they want. We also get some deep Vercosiverse lore. Lois writes that Chalmers loses 160 years on both Earth and Beta Colony. Note, this is the first mention of Beta Colony. This implies that Earth and Beta Colony have an identical calendar year. I can't remember if Lois addressed this later in the series, but it just strikes me as extremely improbable that another planet would have the same 24-hour day, never mind year. Regardless, we do get some tasty tidbits from these 160 years of history. So just to reference here back to that paragraph, quote, He had left wife and children behind on Beta Colony when he was drafted to help officer the hurried, fearful return expedition to America upon the news 24 light years old of the Great War, end quote. So he spends 25 subjective years traveling close to the speed of light. So that's if he is carrying a stopwatch, right? Lois says this translates into 160 Earth beta years. That's if there was a stopwatch with somebody on Earth or beta colony. The idea is that when Chalmers and that person were together, at one point you would start the stopwatches and then you would be able to measure the time dilation that way. So there's two uh, variables here. There's the subjective time and the dilated time. Let's think about this scenario briefly. He goes to and from Earth and Beta Colony. Earth to Beta to colonize. Beta to Earth for the war. Earth to Beta to see his daughter. Beta to Earth to settle on Earth. That's four trips. 160 years divided by four is 40. So it took him 40 Earth Beta years per trip. We are then given the actual distance in light years from Earth to Beta Colony as 24 light years, or the time it took for the news of the Great War to travel from Earth to Beta at the speed of light. From this initial ratio of 160 years to 25 years, I was able to use the time dilation formula to come up with Chalmers Dubauer was traveling at 0.9877c. Check my math, please. So that would be a percentage of speed of light. Uh, C, if you don't know, C is the common uh, symbol used for speed of light. So E equals mc squared, that's C. So we know that sometime after humanity invents an atomic ram engine that can travel at that percent of C, colonization missions are, were launched. So far we know of only one colony, Beta Colony, and we can assume there was another colony called Alpha, which was not, in quotes, successful. Atomic ram engines shoot atomic particle-sized matter at very high velocities to impart a very small amount of thrust, 
which potentially can accumulate into a velocity which is a significant fraction of c. You're essentially accelerating half the time and decelerating the other half. So we'll say that 0.9877c was their average velocity, even though time dilation is not a linear function. Approximately 40 Earth beta years after the colonization mission, plus a few years for Chalmers to start a family, the beta colony received news that a great war had begun 24 years before that point. The newly formed government of Beta Colony sends an emergency mission back to Earth, but not just Earth, Lois specifies America, knowing that it will be at least 64 years since the start of the war by the time they arrive. We don't get information on what happened when they arrived, but after another 40 Earth Beta years, Chalmers is back on Beta Colony, meaning his daughter, who was, quote, a girl not yet conceived when he left, end quote. This little sentence is so full of meaning in relation to the rest of the Vorkosigan saga. I'm not going to talk about specifics, but let's just think about what this could mean. If Chalmers were to say that now, that his child was not conceived before he left, the immediate reaction would be that his wife had a baby with another man while Chalmers was on his rescue mission. Not unforgivable if she knew she would never see him again, but why would he want to meet that child then? And this information is being delivered by what seems like an omniscient narrator. This narrator says she's his sole surviving child. So if this woman is in fact his child, but was conceived after he left for Earth, that must mean that she was conceived using some artificial method. Once again, this concept, which will come into play in a very significant way later on, is introduced in the very first story of the series. Lois then makes a simile about a leprechaun, which I think is a bit jarring thematically. Next, we get some insight into the development of the wormhole nexus. Quote, and in the time it took for his last return trip to Earth, the discovery and rapid development of the new wormhole technology with its instantaneous jumps through the gulfs of space drained his sacrifices of the last of their meaning, end quote. So wormholes began being used sometime between 120 and 160 years after the original ship for Beta Colony first left. And then let's just read the next little paragraph that wraps up our history of Chalmers Dubauer. Quote, so he retired. He built an old-fashioned house like the best from the days of his childhood, set in enormous grounds in the geographical location of his birth, and retreated into it like a hermit crab into its shell. Journalists and historians made him an object of persecution for a while, but he defended his privacy with caustic efficiency and continued the existence of an inverted Robinson Crusoe. Finally, we get a really nice character moment when we read that he has retreated into an artificial sanctuary of a life he imagined he could have lived 160 years ago. We get the impression that this is not a weak man, not a passive man, not a man lacking conviction given his history, but a man beaten by the indifferent winds of change and the unforgiving limits of our physical world. A man that might have been beaten and broken, but let's see if he still has any strength left. Lois then makes a Robinson Crusoe metaphor I again feel that this is jarring thematically. It would be different if the character used the expression with a proper context, but it's still too much of a pop culture reference for the narrator to make, in my opinion. There is a place for omniscient narrators with personality. The first two examples I can give are The Hitchhiker's Guide and the Harry Potter series. But even in these examples, I don't think the narrator makes references to contemporary pop culture or even classical culture. Imagine reading a Conan story and having the narrator say something like, Conan stood like a statue cast in iron as the ranks of civilized men screamed and ran across the open field towards his army. 
Conan's grip tightened around his sword hilt as the anticipation of battle gripped him like the news of a new Kanye album. Now, I know this is an exaggeration, but the parallels to referencing leprechauns and classic works of fiction as the narrator should be obvious. Imagine Lois had referenced Gilligan's Island instead of Crusoe. Simply saying that he was an inverted castaway would have saved the metaphor and I believe is a more interesting sentence in general. Anais arrives at Chalmus's compound and lets herself through the force screen. This is a subtle setup for the force screen concept. Here we get a really lovely bit of character building and establishment of the relationship between Anais and Chalmus. Quote, Chalmus always claimed that his years spent shut up in metal boxes hurtling through space had given him claustrophobia. Anais noticed that this condition came and went with good weather, his mild passion for the outdoors never extending to enduring discomfort. After about 15 minutes of systematic strolling, Anais ran into him in the section given over to the growing of elegant antique flowers. End quote. Here Lois really goes beyond the typical depth of relationship development between characters, especially so quickly and so efficiently. Remember when we were wondering if Chalmus was broken? Well, this sentence seems to indicate that he may be stronger than he even thinks he is. And how interesting to have this insight come from Anais's point of view. It just seems like such a subtle and undescribed dynamic of real friendships, the dynamic of letting your friend have their eccentricities and their harmless delusions. It's an endearing quality that Anais can see through Chalmus a little and that Chalmus might take himself a little too seriously. We get some description of Anais walking around the grounds, searching for Chalmus until she finds him in his antique flower garden, and we get a physical description of him. So we come upon Chalmus resting under a bunch of oak trees. Quote, Chalmus rested on a bench in their shade, as indolent as a manatee. He was a heavy man of middle height and middle age. Sandy hair, graying at the temples, was brushed straight back from a broad forehead. The rather round contours of his face were saved from softness by a pair of uncomfortably penetrating gray eyes, now half-closed. End quote. Chalmus greets Anais as if it's no big deal that she's just shown up. Anais mentions that she left a phone message for him. We get it, he doesn't answer the phone, right? Anais describes her trip from Rio to Toronto. Quote, It was a pretty trip. Say, I noticed a lot of new farming in that radioactive strip by the big lake north of you. Cleveland, he interposed with private dryness. They're doing a lot of oilseed production up there and with the new radiation-resistant hybrids. Sunflowers that really shine. He blinked as blandly as a crocodile and waited for his visitor to justify her existence. End quote. So some hints regarding the fallout of the Great War, maybe? Then we get our first introduction to a speculated future creature, along with some more information about the need for a forest screen. Quote, Anais let her gaze travel over the opulent garden, your flowers look all right, she envied. There was a blurred whirr, and a grasshopper alighted on her leg. Ock, she recoiled and shook it off. Chalmus smiled. They don't bite. They look like they should. Why do you let so many bugs in your garden? You have to keep the force field up for the killer mosquitoes anyway. End quote. So here we go. Uh, I guess we have uh, Chekhov's killer mosquito here. Chalmus guesses Anias has come to visit him in order to avoid her creditors. Apparently this is a habit, and asks how business is going. Anais fills him in on the success of Triad, despite being protested by the Peruvian Moral League, which itself might have been a sort of false flag operation conducted by Helmut Gonzalez in order to generate free publicity through scandal. Chalmers asks, quote, I thought all Feely dreams were pornographic, end quote. 
At this point, I'd like to ask you all to go to Dindarii.com and look at the photos of Lois Page. Take a good look at that haircut. Consider her upside-down glasses. In many of the pictures, she's literally sitting in a rocking chair. Now, pick a single picture. I like the one on her biolog. And ask yourself, is this the face of the most sexually liberated woman of a generation? I obviously can't know your answer to that question, but I wouldn't want to live in a world where the answer isn't yes. There is so much to say about how Lois's point of view on sexuality comes through in her writing, but I think I'd like to talk about that in more detail using examples from later books. In this book, sex inside the feely dream is like taken for granted because, yes, of course, in this realm of pure fantasy, there would be, if not I mean, any kind of consumable media, you know, like more than half of it is sex-related, is, is pornography. Pornography is a serious financial power and has driven the markets as far as media technology development um, from, you know, and I, I don't know this for sure. This could be an urban myth, but uh, from what I have heard, the reason some DVD formats, like, say, Blu-ray beat HD DVD uh, was because pornography became, started becoming distributed on Blu-ray, and, and then before that, the same thing, where there was Betamax and VHS, and uh, even though Betamax was, uh, I guess, considered a better quality format, um, pornography started to be distributed on VHS, and that's where the market went. Uh, even now in the internet, you know, pornography, uh, I would guess that a lot of the very first internet startups to actually make a huge profit were pornography websites. Uh, I don't know that for sure, but uh, if the trends would suggest, and we all know um, that more than that, the majority of the internet is pornography. You know, so so I would hope that one day there would be more social acceptance for this obviously fundamental and necessary part of human nature to be expressed. And in Lois's universe, she frequently describes situations where it does seem that humanity has sort of come to terms with this. Granted, in this story, there is the existence of the Peruvian Moral League, and there is also a reference to the capital C church in, in this story, but these institutions don't seem to have any real teeth in the current society and could possibly be on the wane. And so just continuing on the mechanics of feely dreams and the obvious application of this technology, including pornographic scenarios, uh, we get a really kind of interesting piece of uh, insight from Anais. So Anais is sort of describing the landscape of feely dream being produced. So there's the majority of them are these sort of for adults, adult content, but there is a small market for juvenile feely dreams, which she has been contemplating breaking into. But also, there seems to be like a kind of distinction between what you would consider maybe more artistic expressions that included human sexuality and straight porn. And she is describing some of the kind of lower quality products here. Quote, that's why those cheap porno feelies are so awful. No craft, no control. You're in the middle of some torrid sex fantasy, supposedly and find herself thinking about the composer's bank account, or the state of his bowels, or his upcoming tax audit, whatever's really on what passes for his mind. It's indescribable. You'd have to try it to believe it. 
end quote. This little piece of world building leads very nicely into some context appropriate exposition when it's revealed that Chalmis has refused to have the dreamer implant and Anais mentions the surgery required to implant both the composer and the dreamer implant. So after all this dialogue, Anais now formally asks Chalmis for permission to stay there and work on her commission. She admits that her distributor, Helmut Gonzalez, has been after her, and she reveals that the sequel to Triad is several months overdue. Once again, this does not help to make Anais's character more relatable. Do you see how Anais has caused all her own initial problems? The consequences of her refusal to work carry her along passively into the rest of the story. This is also not a great thing to do to your main character. They need to be active in creating the events of the story, not just sitting around their apartment waiting for something to happen to them. Chalmers agrees to let her stay with him, of course, and we are told a little bit more about Chalmers' day-to-day activities. Quote, Chalmers' hobby, aside from gardens and Epicurean living, was reconditioning old technical equipment for museums. He possessed an elaborate workshop in which he would tinker away happily for hours on the microscopic filigree of their circuits. Some of his projects dated back beyond his own youth and early training. In effect, his expertise took in anything manufactured in the old gross way with inorganic materials. He was totally lost with modern bacterial electronics, where computers were grown, not made. His work was greatly valued by a few historians of science and virtually unknown to anyone else. End quote. Okay, if somebody had been sitting next to me while I first read this paragraph, the sound of shrieking car tires inside my brain might have been audible to them. And to repeat the offending a sentence here, quote, In effect, his expertise took in anything manufactured in the old gross way from inorganic materials. He was totally lost with modern bacterial electronics where computers were grown, not made, end quote. Okay, so that's a huge, that's a huge piece of world building here. She's implying that all of this technology that we have been talking about does not is has been grown in a, some sort of bacterial way, some sort of organic process, and also that there's some sort of social proscription against the old type of computer manufacturing that and it, that is somehow considered gross. I'm so so okay. So this is this is my wheelhouse a, a little bit. I didn't specialize in this part of electrical engineering, but I did study it and I find it really fascinating. And mostly because of how fucking elegant it is. And I just takes, I, 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 I take offense at the use of the word gross. And I'm going to uh, spend the next couple of minutes talking a little bit about how microchips are made. So if you don't know, uh, I hope you find this interesting. And because I did, I did do some research. I do, I do lots of research, you know. In the time, put in the hours, man. When this was written in the 80s, silicon transistor size was in the 1,000 to 10,000 nanometer range, or 1 to 10 micrometers. The size of bacteria are generally between 0.2 and 2 micrometers, so that would be smaller than the current size of transistors at that point. So if Lois was using similar numbers for reference at the time she was writing Dreamweaver's Dilemma, then it could have made sense since bacteria were smaller than the average transistor in the 80s, that it would be plausible they could be manipulated to create something, an organic transistor, that is slightly smaller than itself. It is possible 
that Lois was unaware of the concept of Moore's Law, but I still don't understand why she would have used the word gross to describe the manufacturing process for silicon chips, even from the character's POV. The basic idea she is trying to speculate upon is that of organic versus inorganic electronics. It is generally understood that organic materials are pretty much only good for insulating electronics because they have high resistance. Yes, you can pass current through organic materials, that's why people get shocked and electrocuted, but it is very inefficient and most of the energy is lost to heat, read electrical burns. Silicon, on the other hand, is a semiconductor, meaning that based on specific conditions, it is either a conductor or an insulator. In other words, it's either on or off. Recently, there have been some significant advances in organic transistors. Most people have watched an OLED television, for example. But from what I could find, organics are only really being used in applications involving light, like televisions, light bulbs, and solar panels. But let's talk about the gross way silicon-based transistors are created. First of all, we need to talk about the atomic structure of silicon, which is a crystalline lattice. This just means that the silicon molecules tend to form bonds with each other in a repeating geometric pattern. Picture the steel skeleton of a skyscraper with atoms at the intersections of the I-beams. In nature, orientation of these crystals is random, and if you crack open a geode, for example, you will see many crystal structures colliding into each other. For electronics, every lattice must be oriented in the same direction. To do this, Manufacturers start with a small piece of silicon that is oriented correctly. They then dip this piece into a vat of very hot, obviously liquid, silicon. The atoms in the vat slowly bond with the original piece and over time, a large log-like piece of silicon called an ingot is drawn out of the vat. Think of candle making. During this process, other elements are added to alter the conductive qualities of the silicon depending on the application. This is called doping, it, and it also occurs in other parts of the process as well. This log is then sliced into very thin circular plates. You can recognize these in promotional photographs of microprocessors. They are usually shown on a circular piece of material. If at this point you don't think that manipulating crystalline structures to artificially make a giant, perfectly oriented crystal isn't elegant, then the next part of the process should seal the deal. Over many days, transistors are etched into the silicone using stencils, templates, and masks, similar to printing a photograph from a negative. Grooves are etched into the silicone, which are then filled in with the appropriate material for constructing the different types of transistors. This process creates billions of transistors simultaneously per silicon slice. Once the processor is finished being etched, it is cut out, encased in plastic, while having microscopic wire leads attached. The smallest transistor being produced now is from IBM and is 2 nanometers long, which is many order of magnitudes smaller than a bacteria, verging on the atomic scale. At this point, the technology is bumping against a natural barrier as far as transistor size goes. This is due to the wave-particle nature of matter. Yes, we encounter the dualistic properties of matter in our everyday life. In the case of transistors, we can think of them as on and off switches. Another way to put it is that it is a gate that is either open or closed, allowing a current of electron to go through or not. As that gate gets physically thinner and thinner, the probability that an electron will stay on one side while it's closed goes down until eventually that electron can tunnel through the gate 
in a probabilistic way, causing current to flow when it's not wanted. I honestly can't see what Lois thought was gross about any of this. This sentence might be an attempt at world building, implying that there was some kind of irrational cultural bias against inorganic electronics, but I think it was just a speculative gutter ball. Back to the story. A week passes and we find Anias and Chalmers relaxing on lawn chairs after dinner. Next, we get a little more information about the giant mosquitoes. Quote, Anias lay idly counting the sputter and glow like shooting stars of the mosquitoes flying into the automatic force screens some hundreds of feet above them. Seven, eight. Hey, Thomas, is it true those things can drain the blood from a man in 15 minutes? Doubt it, he responded lazily. I suppose if you were attacked by a swarm, you could get significant blood loss. But for all that they're five inches long, they're mostly legs and wings. I don't suppose they can load on more than 10 cc's a bite. The real problem is the venom. He took a swallow of his tall ice lemonade. Even then, two or three bites wouldn't kill you unless you were one of those people who are violently allergic. It might make you pretty sick though, especially if they'd been breeding in the high radiation areas. They can give a nasty burn. End quote. Again, in this first story of the series, we get a little glimpse of a recurring theme, that of the fatal allergy. I'd also like to take this moment to offer a solution to my critiques of Anais's introductory paragraph, and hopefully after this I'm going to just drop it. <laughs> right here, we get the imagery of a giant blood-sucking insect with, I am assuming, a proportionally sized proboscis. Now, instead of a spear-fishing metaphor, Lois could have begun the story with a dream of giant mosquitoes. The skewering metaphor could remain, except instead of a harpoon, it could be the mosquito's proboscis. This could serve the double purpose of inferring the dream state by having a fantastical creature, but also as a setup for the reality of those creatures later in the story. Also, this imagery could be used as a more natural way to bring up Chalmers instead of the doesn't answer the phone thing. Chalmers asks Anias how her work is going. Up until now, Anias has been reluctant to discuss any details of the Feely dream with Chalmers because the terms of secrecy she agreed to with Kinsey. But after Chalmers pries a little with the line, quote, And yet you damn with faint praise. What's disturbing you if I'm not out of line? He added, by way of offering to shut up. No, no. Do I seem disturbed? She asked anxiously. End quote. Okay, so this line, and you damned with faint praise, it just struck me as it, like it seemed like a reference to something else. You know, it's a beautiful line of prose, and I'm sure Lois is very capable of producing something of equal quality. But it just, it just struck me as something that could possibly be a reference to something else. So I Googled it, and it was. And it was a, uh, a poem by Alexander Pope from 1734. And the, po the poem, uh, it's an excerpt I'm going to read you guys. Uh, it's from the epistle to Dr. Arbuthnot in Prologue to the Satires. Okay, here we go. So here we got some poetry, some 18th century poetry. <clears throat> Damn with faint praise, assent with civil leer, and without sneering, teach the rest to sneer. Willing to wound and yet afraid to strike, just hint a fault and hesitate dislike oh it's a oh my god i don't know i don't know that tickled me uh, this is it's so snarky it's just right up her alley too it's right up lois's alley because it's like this, like this has got to be the best 
description of somebody being passive aggressive ever, you know? And like, this is just the kind of tone that a lot of uh, Lois's snarky comments kind of fall into. Uh, it's great. That's great. Okay. Now this is, you know, this is a cultural reference. Yes. And I, I've railed against them, but this does come from the character's point of view. And there's many ways you could justify a character, especially somebody like Chalmers with having access to this original poem or I, you know, somehow have come across it somewhere. So, um, yeah, I think it's perfectly acceptable. And now, you know, if, if in other situations where the context would be this is some sort of far distant future society, like tens of thousands of years in the future, then it would sort of stretch believability and there would have to be a damn good explanation for why a character would be able to quote something like this. But in this context, I think it works fine. And, and I like that Lois put it in there. And I would be curious to hear the story about how Lois first came across this and what she thought about it and why she decided to uh, put it in her story. So after Chalmers uses this quote uh, to sort of try to pry some more information out of Anais, who does seem to be kind of uptight about this whole thing, we get Anais's little thought process here. Really great stuff. Quote, Anais teetered on the edge of temptation, then rather deliberately gave in. And so that was uh, the description of Anais deciding to break the secrecy, which she obviously really wasn't that, didn't take to heart that much. You know, she's been, it feel like she's been looking for an excuse. This is such a classic Bujold way of describing one of her characters going, fuck it. Lois is such a punk. Anais then goes on to talk about the disturbing imagery and themes from the script that Kinsey had given her. Anais says, quote, but Chalmers, this thing is really weird, and in more ways than just its imagery. And the more I work on it, the weirder it gets. That's partly an effect of getting it into dream form. Things do tend to take on a life of their own, just normally. It's an extraordinary commission. I suppose that's why I took it. End quote. So interesting that Anais is intrigued by the artistic challenge of rendering something so weird. The creative challenge of it was also part of her initial decision-making about whether to take the job. It's kind of like messing around with the lament configuration box. Explorers in the further regions of experience. Demons to some, angels to others. Anais gives the Feely Dream script to Chalmers, and after reading it, he points out that it appears to be designed to be played on a loop. This was set up a little bit earlier when Anais mentioned the ending was a little vague. After this, Anais explains all about the meeting with Kinsey and the secrecy and the money. Chalmers seems to be concerned, but is reserved. It feels like he's giving her the benefit of the doubt as far as matters of her own business goes, but he does tease her for being too trusting. Anais eventually asks him outright if he thinks she should have done the commission. Chalmers asks, quote, Is it possible to harm somebody with a feeling dream? I am rather at a disadvantage, never having experienced one. Well, there are addicts, Anais allowed, people who spend way too much time on them and get carried away by their favorites. But I don't see that feeling dreams are different from any other pleasure in that respect, in spite of what the church says. Other than that, I think even the nasty ones do more good than harm. You can be as unpleasant as you like in a feely, and no one is hurt, except for whatever soul-curdling effects habits of thought may have. How would you measure that? No, I think feelings are just a new way for people to go on doing the same old things. You're answering your own question, then. I might have known you wouldn't. He handed her back the papers, then asked curiously, 
does your Mr. Kinsey strike you as somebody for whom that, he pointed at the papers, would be his fondest fancy? No, answered Anias slowly. Not, but what I think he'd be pretty rank. If anything, I get the impression he might be an agent for somebody. I think so too. It's a curious puzzle. I shall be interested to hear how it ends. Do keep me posted when you get back to Rio. What, will you answer your phone? Laughed Anias. Only for you, my dear. Only for you. Okay. And that there is the end of the section. So we got a couple more sections to go. Uh, and then we'll be in striking distance of the end for the next episode. So let's keep going. A week later, Anais is finished with the feely dream. She thinks, quote, She was proud of the mastery of her craft the dream displayed. Anais's imagination was vivid, visceral, full of poetic power, and she had poured that power into the dream. And then there was the money, end quote. So we see that she's even impressed herself with how potent the Philly dream is. On her way back to Rio, she encounters some problems with her flight, culminating in the temporary loss of her luggage. Fortunately, the airport slash spaceport workers, the word shuttle is used, eventually find her bag and she makes it home. She begins to unpack her bag and can't find her dream synthesizer. Thinking she must have left it at Chalmers' place, she leaves a phone message for him to look for it. The next day, Kinsey shows up to collect the Philly dream. He has with him a large bag out of which he produces his own dream reader. Quote, Anais produced the master cartridge and watched critically as he slipped it into his player and attached a single reader lead to the small metallic disc behind his left ear. He switched on the player and closed his eyes. End quote. Interesting. So we, I mean, we could have assumed this was how one experienced the feely dream, but we get it now explicitly shown to us. Quote, After a few minutes, he switched it off again Rather hastily, it seemed to her. He sat up and regarded her with something like a reptilian version of respect. This is certainly quite remarkable, he said at last. Anais preened mentally, but kept her face straight. End quote. After accepting the feeling dream, Kinsey produces a bonded check, which Lois describes as having a magnetic strip on it. Cute. Anais is unsure about accepting this form of payment, but the check looks genuine and should be unstoppable. It turns out that the banks are closed the following day, and, since electronic deposits are not a thing, she figures she can start spending wildly in just two more days. At this point, Kinsey, quote, rose to go, but stopped at the door, looking at her almost slyly. I say, can I ask a small favor of you? For a fee, of course. Anaya shrugged. You can always ask. Shoot. Tomorrow is my aunt's birthday. She is rather a fan of yours, I wonder if it would be possible to compose a very short piece for her, a sort of dream birthday card, as it were. She is very fond of the poem Dorian's Gift. If you could put it in a setting or something, I'm sure she would be thrilled. End quote. Anais is put off by the seemingly wholesome request coming from the man that had just made payment for such a disturbing commission. She tells Kinsey that she would do it, but that she has left her stream synthesizer at her friend's house. Kinsey replies, quote, Oh, well... Perhaps it'll turn up. End quote. And what do you know? Soon after Kinsey leaves, Anais's dream synthesizer does show up, apparently having been kicked under the couch. Now, I don't think that Lois was at any point trying to mislead us about Kinsey's intentions. It's pretty obvious that he has been misleading and manipulating Anais, and Anais and Chalmers have already figured out how there is potential for Kinsey's feely dream to be misused. 
So what good does it do us as readers if we already kind of know what is going to happen? Well, there are emotions that can be evoked when the reader knows more than the character. If this is done poorly, you can have a situation where the reader gets bored with the story because they already know what the big twist is. In the worst cases, the characters behave in seemingly irrational ways in order to not learn the secret, and for me at least, characters that are written to be willfully ignorant or just incompetent at solving their own problems are deeply frustrating to read about. I think that Anais skirts the edge of willfully ignorant with her dealings with Kinsey, but her behavior later makes up for that a little. However, what Lois has managed to do here is create the proper emotion for the reader, that of suspense. The reader knows something is fishy about Kinsey and has pretty much been waiting the whole story for his betrayal. Now, with the strange disappearance and reappearance of Anais' dream synthesizer, we start to understand the possible nature of that betrayal. And since we have been told, in a skillful way by Lois, about the amount of dream synthesizer technology that has been implanted into Anais' brain, our imaginations begin working on the possible gruesome ways Kinsey's betrayal could be carried out. But Anais is not completely helpless. Quote, Now how the devil did you get under the couch? She soliloquied. If I'd lost you unpacking, it'd have been in the bedroom. End quote. And then a little further down, quote, For a time yesterday, she had been having paranoid fancies that it was stolen, the dream synthesizer we're talking about. Before reasoning instead, it must have been left behind. But synthesizers were not interchangeable without custom adjustments, and she could not imagine what anyone else would take it for except ransom, a rather exotic notion. She reached again for the leads, then was stopped again by a new thought, end quote. So we have this really kind of tense moment where she's trying to get to work on this commission for Kinsey, you know, the birthday card thing, and she's like picking up these leads uh, to connect them to her her little implants and then she's putting them she's like kind of having this little uh dilemma and i suppose of whether to give in to her paranoia or not and then we get quote what a stupid idea you're letting chalmus's attitude get to you my dear she murmured he had always been bothered by the wires in her head having archaic visions of short circuits though his unease usually took the form of jokes about walking around in thunderstorms in fact the viral connections of the synthesizer were incapable of building up enough charge to hurt her. They would cook themselves first. End quote. Let's just stop it and talk about this for a second. I'm not sure if Lois may have convoluted bacteria and viruses here. I don't think so because I know she's into biology and, and that distinction is very important to biologists. But it is interesting that there is some kind of circuit protection built into the dream synthesizer. One could easily imagine the ultra-thin wires inside Anais' brain melting with even a superficially small surge of current. Lois does give us a really believable bit of internal back and forth of Anais' thought process and adds a nice justification for what could be seen as the introduction of a plot convenience when Anais pulls out a previously unmentioned piece of technology that is perfectly useful in this exact situation. Quote, Just the same, she did own a diagnostic test kit put away somewhere. She'd never had trouble with her set and had never had occasion to use it. Really, it was a redundant item, for the machine would have to go back to the manufacturer for any repairs anyway. Mostly, it represented an object lesson in sales resistance. That's funny. But for the sake of peace among her argumentative selves, she got up and went to look for it. Her test kit proved almost as hard to find as her synthesizer had been, but after some search, she finally unearthed it at the back of a drawer beneath a collection of stray oddments and half pairs of this and that. She was ruffled by her quest, 
which she had almost given up. Here again, a little, we're not out of the woods yet, you know, keeping that tension, which she had almost given up. But now that she had found it, she dutifully set it besides her dream machine and prepared to plug it in. She pulled out the leads, placed them in their assigned slots, and switched it on. Instantly, there was a loud crack, a brilliant flash of bluish light, and a horrible smell as little orange flames danced over the slagged plastic for a moment. Anais was knocked over backwards, her hand tingling from the nimbus of the shock. She scrambled, shaking to her feet, gulping for breath, heart pounding. My God, she breathed, as astonished as if she had been shot by a lover. She had been telling herself for ten minutes that her fears were silly, and this was not the confirmation she had been expecting. She stared at the heap of smoking ruins on the table. My synthesizer, she wailed out loud. She sat down abruptly and stretched her hands toward the mess, then drew it back. Adrenaline-induced tears started to her eyes. End quote. So, there's the shoe dropping, the betrayal, finally. And yeah, it's pretty gruesome. After she collects her wits a little bit, Anais calls Chalmers, who answers the phone this time in an unredeemable act of plot convenience. Since they've even just been, you know, why would he answer it now, right? If Lois didn't make, make such a point of that, you know, then it, it would just be like, it makes the story difficult to tell now because it's making, you're putting artificial and, and like un, almost unmotivated obstacles between your characters communicating. But of course now it's not an issue. Anyway, I, I do like the story. I, I know I, I, I maybe should say that more. I do like the story. I do like Lois's writing. I, I love this series. Okay, let's keep going. Anais explains the situation to him, going over all the details about losing and finding the dream synthesizer and about her meeting with Kinsey and the request for a dream for his aunt. They both conclude that the aunt thing was only an excuse to have Anais use the synthesizer. Thomas invites her back to his compound to hide out until they or the police can think of what to do next. Quote, In the meantime, I will do what I can through my contacts to encourage the police to exert themselves in your cause. Give me another call when you're ready to leave. I'll wait for it. Right, end quote. The police soon arrive at Anais' apartment, and she tells them the details of her interactions with Kinsey. The questions police ask, quote, open up uncomfortable vistas of her own carelessness, end quote. So she, she's not completely oblivious now. I don't know. She seemed to be uh, acting in the face of common sense here a lot with this guy, and there's some motivation behind that, that she's wanting to challenge herself artistically. It's, I think all in all, it's, it's, it's a medium, weak to medium motivation to, you know, put yourself at such risk also. But I suppose, you know, the, the real thing that pushed her over the, the edge there was the money. So I guess that's all justified. At, at the same time, though, it, this is good that she is sort of kind of coming to her senses in a, in a way. The police collect evidence from her apartment, including the burned-out dream synthesizer and the 20,000 SAH Pesadero check. She catches another shuttle to Toronto, and we begin to get some clues as to the magnitude of the predicament, or dilemma, she is in now. Quote, The more she thought about it, the more her conviction grew that money alone was not sufficient motivation for her murder. She had the unhappy suspicion that she had been used, willingly if unconsciously, as a tool in a very much nastier scheme. By the time she reached Thomas's, her own most intimate knowledge of her recent work, reviewed with sickening clarity, had suggested to her another possible reason for the crime. End quote. 
So they're trying to figure out, you know, why Kinsey would try to kill her. They suspected it so that she wouldn't be able to cash the check. Uh, but, you know, that's it does seem like a little bit of an elaborate plan just for that. So they're trying to really dig deeper. When she meets Chalmers, she says, quote, I'm sure it was for the dream, she said to Chalmers. I believe it is to be used as a weapon, end quote. I'm not sure precisely where in the story this happened, but at some point, maybe even set up from the beginning, this story began to take on the form of a noir mystery. I really love when stories do this. A few examples I could think of are The Big Lebowski, where we get a character unwittingly drawn into a situation where he becomes a detective by default. The Matrix is another. I have a vivid memory the first time I watched that movie coming to the realization that, oh my God, this is a kung fu movie too. And up until that point, we don't have to beat the dead horse of why The Matrix was so incredibly influential, but mixing those genres, uh, I hadn't seen it, uh, even though I'm sure someone had attempted it to greater or lesser ex- success. That, that was the first time I had seen it, and it was just blew my mind that that, that even was a, a thing you could do, mix those genres. And, and anyway, I was 17, I think, when we saw that, 16 or 17. Chalmers and Anais revisit the idea of weaponizing a feely dream. Quote, I sensed it. You even sensed it. But I was so wound up in admiring my own abilities. I wanted to do that dream. I've got to get that cartridge back. The sooner the better. Slow down, slow down. Now, begin at the beginning. Just how do you think it can be used as a weapon? I can imagine, I suppose, it being played over and over to someone by force. But I don't quite see what effect it would be expected to have. Not by force, in their sleep. In their sleep, like hypnotic suggestion, only much stronger. The thing was tailor-made, designed to fit the cracks of a particular personality. I think that if it were played even a few nights, say four or five, to that person, they could really be induced to commit suicide. Only it would be really the perfect murder because a suicide would be genuine. The murderer would never have to go near the victim, destroy the cartridge, and it would never, ever be proved. End quote. So, there we go. Now we have our first sort of outline of, you know, what's really going on. You know, the real real mystery is is coming to the surface here. Anais then goes on to conjecture that there must have been somebody above Kinsey. She calls him Mr. Big another noir-type element. After this, Anais seems to have reached her limit as a detective, but Chalmers thinks that she knows more than she realizes. Chalmers starts asking Anais demographic questions, and together they theorize what kind of person would be affected in the most negative way by the dream. They come up with, quote, So the victim is a middle-aged woman married with one or more children and a history of mental illness. We also know she has a dreamer implant, therefore she's well-to-do. I have a gut feeling money plays a part in this. The murderer at least assumes money is a powerful motivation, hence the price he offered you for the dream. Also, the trouble he's gone to not pay it. We also know the murderer is on intimate enough terms with the victim to have access to her in her sleep, though there is a possibility he may merely have suborned such a person. Also, by your hypothesis, We know his fatal flaw. Chalmers was getting carried away with the role of amateur detective and forgetting his original purpose of soothing Anais to sleep. What flaw? The damn thing looked perfect to me. He can't leave well enough alone. He can't leave and end loose. 
if he hadn't tried to kill you, you probably would have gone on forgetting your suspicions, never making any connections. Admittedly, if his attempt on you had succeeded, that would not be the case, except for me. End quote. This is so interesting because not only is it clever exposition, but it also shows how deeply Lois is capable of thinking about characters and their motivations. Anais is concerned that the police won't be able to locate the people who have her feely dream before they are able to do whatever bad thing they want it for. Together, Anais and Chalmers devise a plan using a news reporter connection of hers and some personal ads to try and clue Kinsey into where Anais is and lure him to Chalmers' property and then trap him and interrogate him. Also, we learn that Chalmers' compound is in Ohio. I just, and I also want to point out that this is the first time Lois uses the word suborn, and this is a word she, I, I love every time, I, I love when she uses it, I don't know why, uh, I just like that word a lot, and uh, it's very uncommon, I, I don't think I've, I mean, I'm likely I've read it from another author, but she uses it uh, repeatedly, and, 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 and I like it, um, it's, a, it's a really cool word. After agreeing on the plan, Anais asks Chalmers, quote, uh, what if it works? What if he comes armed? Do you have any guns? No, no, no guns. I suppose I can't blame you for not having the engineering point of view. There are weapons all around us, much better than guns. If you can get them up here, I think you'd better leave that part of it to me. Gladly. End quote. Yeah, don't mess with engineers. Except civil engineers. Those aren't real engineers. But, okay, I'm just kidding. I'm just, I'm not. And with bait set on the hook for Kinsey, maybe fishing metaphors were are appropriate, we will bring this episode to a close. Thank you once again for listening. Please do all the social media and podcast-related things the other recording of my voice encourage you to do. And until next time, I will see you all on the far side of the wormhole nexus.